two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and I am joined by Tracy Lorio. She is an assistant professor of critical media and big data at Carleton University, and she teaches critical data studies. She has been neck deep in open government and open data for years, so much so that she was given the inaugural Canadian Open Data Leader of the Year Award in 2016. And the reason she's here with us today is because lots has happened in the last little while, and Tracy is gonna give us an update on the COVID-19 open data landscape. Hello, Tracy, and thanks for joining us. Hey, Richard, thanks for having me. So my first question is quite simply, are you happy with the government's reaction when faced with the need to release more data, more open data during this time of need? Uh, I guess it depends which branch of government we're talking about. So when we talk about uh, you know, public health officials and what they've been up to, I think they've done the best job that they know how to do. Okay. <laughs> and they should be lauded for the activities that they're doing where some of the reporting has fallen perhaps a bit short on the public health side of the equation on websites. I won't talk about radio and I won't talk about TV, but I'll talk about uh, the official websites for, for population health or public health. Has been, uh, generally speaking, the publishing of the most up-to-date data, which is excellent. But on a daily basis, they've been overwriting their data when they provide updates, which means that they don't have any kind of longitudinal analysis being provided. Uh, And so you never know when you go check the website, oh, is this the latest update? Did I miss an update? Uh, Is this everything? What was reported yesterday? I didn't get a chance to grab it. How can I look at last week's compared to this week's? That's not possible on all the government websites. So that's problematic. Uh, and that is as a result of however the communication channels are set up to, you know, whoever it is that does the final publishing on the websites, and perhaps a lack of an overarching policy of, of understanding what open data are in, in the era of open government. But I've been very pleased to see what the government of Ontario has done, where when we, when we put out the request and said, Perhaps we need to have some longitudinal data and how can we get our open government colleagues and friends engaged in this activity? And they took up the call and now on the open government website, they are not only pointing to the, to the uh, public health websites, excuse me, they are also producing longitudinal data sets in an open format that they make very prominently available on their website. What I haven't done yet is my due diligence to go look at all of the provincial and territorial websites to see if they're doing the same thing. And if they are not doing the same thing, I'm going to encourage them to do so. So in other words, you know, people are doing the best that they know how, but it's been very interesting to observe how we've done all of this really great work on open data and open government over the past few years and accountability and transparency. Uh, and of course, after the last couple of elections, bringing science back onto the table and evidence-based decision-making. But clearly what we're seeing is uh, a lack of integration of those ideals across all government departments. 
And I think that that's something, you know, after we're, once we're all out of crisis mode, I think that there's going to be some merit in sitting down and thinking this through again to ensure that next time around, hopefully there won't be, but chances are there will be something that we know that across government channels, we know how to publish data. We know the kind of formats that these data should be in. We should have data dictionaries and methodological guides related to these. We should have definitions related to these. And we should have some kind of explanation as to how these data are authoritatively gathered and collected and recorded. And I think right now that's not clear. We trust the population and public health and epidemiological websites, the official government websites, because of who they are. We trust them. But in the long term, we need to trust them. But we also need some background information to understand the infrastructure of how this works. And also, we need to leverage you know, open standards, open practices, open data, and open government practices to ensure that data are also provided in a way that we have longitudinal information across time. Like one of the things that I've seen online in terms of longitudinal, I've seen a lot of visualizations about data yes. around the world. So it almost seems as though, I mean, would you agree with this, that the community is sort of acting as a kind of quasi repo for these data sets that sure you may not see the longitudinal data as a whole but they're doing those screen grabs they're catching the data and creating their own uh, essentially database with longitudinal information yes and but my and and i think that's excellent my issue is who are these people same question that I would have with the provincial government or federal government or territorial government or municipal government is not only who are you, how are you doing this? What methodology are you using to do this? And what are the strengths and the limitations of what it is that you're doing? So that we don't uh, confuse the public with multiple types of information, some that are authoritative and some are less authoritative. And I think we're in this interesting point right now where there's many different channels and we're not sure which ones we can trust and which one we can't trust. It's not saying that people doing this work, people are doing it because sometimes government isn't fast enough or nimble enough or doesn't have the skills or you know, the, the open, not the open, but the you know, public health team is busy on the front lines of the crisis. They're not sitting around making visualizations. So it's good that we rely on others to do so. But we also need to make sure that the information that we are, uh, that, is, that is being shared is using the right models and the right methodologies to share information. It's one thing to do this with, uh, you know, my favorite restaurants in the city. That's fine. There's a level of risk there that's quite minimal. But in, a con in the context of a pandemic, it's a high risk, high stakes activities, and we need to be able to trust what people are doing. So what, I, what I've appreciated, um, some of the sites that I've really, really appreciated in the context of Canada is how the private sector, uh, a company called ESRI, a US-based company, but also based here, a, a mapping software company, has put together a very, very good COVID-19 dashboard. And I trust them because I know that they have a really good, solid, reliable network of public health officials that they have been working with for decades. 
And I also know that they are scientists, that they are cartographers, they are spatial analysts, and they are people who understand the accuracy, the reliability, and the validity of the data sets that they are working with. And also, more importantly, they understand the modeling. And so that has been a dashboard that I think has been a very, very good example of how private sector, public sector actors, as well as individual cartographic and spatial data and geomatics experts have come together to publish that dashboard and to keep it up to date. And, and if we go take a look at the Stanford website uh, in the United States, uh, that's, been, that's been the main dashboard globally on these issues, they too have that really excellent team of specialists doing that work. What is disconcerting for me in both of those situations is, um, and then like you know, I'm not saying that we that it's disparaging that the that the private sector is doing this is how come we are not able to do that in the public sector? Mm. What happened that we don't have this group of experts that can nimbly come together and do this and have that information from official government websites? I don't have the answer to it, but I think it's a very very interesting question. But I'm also incredibly thankful for the people who came together uh, with the Esri COVID-19 site. And I think it's a very, very good dashboard. And that's a very good example of solid, reliable, accurate type of reporting. Now, based on sort of your own personal sort of survey of the open data landscape during COVID-19, are there any particularly open data sets that have been released? or that need to be released? That, that, that you found that, sorry, let me ask the question again, yeah. because I sort of said it backwards here. <laughs> you can see me shaking my head back and forth, right? <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's stick with perhaps just one angle on this one. Okay. Are, th are there any particular open data sets that you wish would be released by the government that have yet to be released that could help the community quite a bit in conquering COVID-19? Well, I can't say because I'm not, I don't, I'm not on the front lines of the conquering, right? I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a public health official. Uh, I'm not an official government uh, communication channel. Uh, I'm not a health expert. So I can't say what is required for that. I really can't because that's not my area of expertise. And, and there's no, you know, there would be no, I have no authority to, to answer that question. However, related data um, socioeconomic data of issues going on in the economy more broadly on a variety of issues that we're seeing uh, as effects of the fact that we are in a pandemic situation, that we are in our homes, uh, issues related to social isolation, issues related to where can we find stuff. So what I've been, what I've liked is seeing people coming up with a peer-to-peer -peer sharing types of platforms, and I don't have a list of all of them, so I won't even mention any, but there's some people who are trying to troubleshoot that activity. They're trying to connect their neighbors with other neighbors who need things, uh, you know, little, even little simple, you know, notes in buildings where people are saying, look, I'm going out, uh, what do you need? And I'll go pick it up for you and so on. So those are very interesting initiatives to help deal with the current situation that we're in. The other side of it is, uh, on the socioeconomic side, we also know that there's a whole bunch of people who are either precarious labor or gig labor, 
such as, you know, think of an Uber driver and Lyft driver, the, you know, skip the dishes drivers, all those people delivering stuff on our behalf are at greater risk and are being exposed. And we really don't really have a good handle on how much of the economy is reliant on that group of workers, gig workers, because we don't have a really good way of tracking that. So is that a, a data set that's absent? I would say yes, because we really haven't been paying attention to it and we don't have a way to do it easily. So what does it look like to know about that group of workers and the precarity of that labor force? We also, don't, we also know that there's a whole bunch of people in the entire country who are minimum wage workers who are also working in grocery stores, who are working in drug stores, et cetera, et cetera. And we don't really have a good conversation about not only, you know, as we have, you know, as we've seen a lot of the memes that they're the new superheroes right now on, in this particular issue, along with our chief medical officers of health and public health officials. But what we also don't know is we haven't talked a lot about how much we rely on that group of workers but also how many of those who have been who are out of work in the service industry you know waiters bartenders uh, people working in a variety of stores uh, people doing all kinds of small things the cleaners in buildings people uh, you know the people who work in cafeterias uh, the people who clean and, and take care of washrooms and public institutions all of that group of workers are a group of workers we almost never talk about um, and who are they where are they how many of them are there? What are the different classes of those workers? How are we going to protect that group of people? Now we're seeing all kinds of conversations about uh, minimum income and all of these other strategies, but we don't have data sets that help us really understand who those group of people are in the labor force right now in a contemporary way. The other thing we don't know a lot about is we don't know a lot about how many people are on fixed incomes? So our seniors, we kind of have those data, but we don't really talk about who those people are and where they're living and how they're distributed in their homes and what their networks are and what, what they don't have in terms of networks. We don't have a really good handle. You know, we, when we talk about poverty, uh, we talk about crisis or we talk about, you know, poor neighborhoods, but what is going on in terms of risk of homelessness and people who are on fixed income, whether that be disability support, whether that be senior support, or that entire class of workers that I was just talking about earning, you know, pretty low wages, either still in the workforce, but under strained conditions, and all of those other people who are not able to participate in the workforce. And then we have this whole other group, and this is near and dear to my heart, is students. Right, we have students who uh, are not going to have teaching assistantships, who are losing their research assistantships. That's a little bit of money that they had to kind of keep things going. Uh, scholarships and so on are being slowed down. Um, and the whole issue with their student loans and the fact that they were all counting on summer jobs to survive and they're not going to get these summer jobs. So it's nice that. You know, the government of Ontario, uh, at least for OSAP, has said, okay, well, you don't have to start paying back your OSAP until September, and we'll see how that's going to change. But who are these different classes of people in the Canadian population that we don't often talk about? How many are there? Where are they? What are their issues? How many weeks away are they from emptying their bank accounts not being able to pay their credit cards 
et cetera, et cetera. And how are we going to deal with those people if we don't even have basic information about them? So for me, it's this kind of socioeconomic data more broadly in the economy and those who are hit hardest that I would like to know more about. And I don't, don't, I don't think we know enough about them. You know, if we go back to what we were talking about earlier with open data, open data, and you've heard me, you've heard me harp about this before. Open data is fantastic. You know, I love it. You know, I'm one of the founders of it. But I've also been troubled by the fact that still the open data that we get are primarily data that help a specific subsection of the population, either real-time data with buses and those kinds of things, and people who can capitalize and, and develop apps and so on. But what we, we have really still missed across the country, whether that be city uh, scale, whether that be provincial, territorial, or whether that be federal, and when I say federal, I don't just mean the open data government website, I mean all of the federal government family, like the ESDCs of the world, the stats cans of the world, and so on. We have not focused on data about socioeconomic issues, especially about the working poor, gig economy, and people on fixed incomes. And I think we need to be considering that, let alone if we talked about housing, precarity of that, risk of homelessness. And then, of course, the one issue that we know has been on the front lines for 25 years now, we've been talking about the homelessness crisis. And now that it scares us, we are doing something about it. We're putting people in student residences and we're putting them in hotels. But that's not because we care about them. That's because we're afraid of them making us sick. And that is, I think, a shame on all of us that though that group of people hasn't been properly cared for. And now what are we going to do in the long term? In the short term, these people have a house. Isn't that nice of us? When we're afraid of being sick, they now have a home. But what are we going to do to deal with the most vulnerable people in our societies that we are now starting to see the cracks fall through or them falling through the cracks, forgive me, wrong mixed up metaphor there, them falling through the cracks because we haven't cared enough for them and we don't even have the data to better understand that group. Anyway, sorry for my long rant, but you can see this is really important for me. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and that's why you, you've become such an, uh, a thought leader on the subject and why people listen to you is because they can tell that this is a passionate thing that people need to care about. And, and you're so right. And the, the silver lining to COVID-19, if anything, is that it really has amplified the message that we as open government and open data practitioners have been talking about for a long time. Now people are seeing the impact of those polls that you're talking about. And that's why I want to, I'm going to switch, I want to switch gear a little bit here sure. about how some of those holes are being filled right now. Are there any sort of interesting open government, open data, civic tech initiatives that have been launched in the last little while, or maybe, maybe even as a response to COVID-19 that you feel people need to know about because it can really, really help them. So I really liked uh, the work that's going on in BC right now, uh, led by the uh, Chief Digital Officer of BC, Jamie Boyd, where she is reaching out to the community um, in recognition that some people need help and need some services, and she's trying to match the need with those who can help provide uh, the digital platforms or applications to help with those unmet needs. So I really like that as an approach because it is nimble. 
It is recognizing and taking responsibility for that role and that responsibility of that, that particular office. And that office exists across the country. Those officers exist in all provinces and territories in one form or another. There's that C class of officers, if you will, right? Chief technology officers, chief data officers, chief digital strategy officers who have a role and a responsibility at this time, I think to be nimble and to start creating opportunities and to start realizing that things need to be delivered on the front lines in those areas. So I really appreciated uh, her leadership in that particular space. I was, again, I already mentioned the government of Ontario open government team's leadership on uh, starting to, you know, to, to shift the, the narrative on the kinds of data. I've liked what Code for Canada actors have done over the weekend with a hackathon um, reaching out to the country and trying to find interesting ways to get people who are at home, uh, who have some digital skills, who have some coding skills, who have some communication skills, who have some UX skills, and who have some data skills to come together loosely throughout the weekend to try and think through and to come up with that, those strategies. I really appreciated that. Uh, I was in a conversation today with a group of people uh, I think you were part of that as well, Richard, where we know that uh, we have a, I have a friend and colleague over at Statistics Canada that is looking to mobilize the uh, really important work that they've done already in crowdsourcing uh, the building uh, across the country in terms of an open street map and looking at that same kind of platform and related types of platforms to start at least releasing, for instance, where are all the um, hospitals in the country and how do you get those data out? So we're starting to see people in different places who have different roles and responsibility inside the academy, outside the academy, inside government, outside of government, and also who have friends on all sides coming together to start strategizing in these issues. We're starting to see you know, organizations like Open North starting to figure out how they can use their channels and their network to connect people that that are part of you know their professional network and their government network of people to try and get those actors to also do things uh, people who have blogs who are starting to put uh, information out in different ways but also um, just you know emails of between people who know each other and who have expertise in certain areas sharing what they're finding and what their thoughts are about those findings in terms of data in terms of apps in terms of platforms in terms of policy issues such as you know we're having issues with regards to surveillance and tracking and how do we deal with that and how do we govern that you know what are the or as Helen Nissenbaum would say what is the contextual integrity of privacy in a context where there's a, a pandemic and ought we be sharing these data to keep each other safe and if we do so how should we be governing that space and how long should that be normal to share that information and at which time is it not normal to share that information and there I defer back to legal scholars like Teresa Scassa and Michael Geist and also the Citizen Lab in Toronto who are doing really interesting and important frontline work uh, using their scholarly knowledge to alert us to these issues. So I think there's a bunch of things that are happening across the country, some very localized, some broad, some in government, some not, and some realizing where they have a specialization, like what you're doing with this blog, right? You have the skills, you have a network, you're using this blog, or not this blog, forgive me, this podcast as a 
a means to communicate some of the issues more broadly and you're mobilizing your network in a way that is going to be useful so that we can augment these conversations. So I'm heartened by that particular kind of activity as well. Well, thank you for, for saying as such. And uh, coincidentally, you mentioned Professor Michael Geist. Uh, we've confirmed him to be a guest on the podcast and we'll soon be releasing an episode with him to talk about those privacy issues that you've mentioned, which is very relevant because that can be, a, history has shown us that relinquishing rights can be a slippery slope for many governments, which is, goes back to a previous sort of episode that we had on the show with Jesse Hirsch, uh, the technologist and futurists who mentioned like, democracy could be on the line here uh, in terms of what we do and what we don't do. But I want to go back a little bit to initiatives because there's one in particular that you're a fan of uh, that we talked about sort of in our pre-interview. I forget the name of it. I think it was called the, uh, the, the Digital Citizen or the Digital something or other. What was, it? What was the name of the it? Digital something or other. I forgot. The <laughs> <laughs> <a> live rewind. <laughs> oh, yeah. I didn't even okay. put it. I talked about it. Okay, well, fair enough. We'll move <laughs> on. And if it pops up in your head again, please um, uh, let me know. So, so then let's talk about, you mentioned hackathons. Yes. And in the early 2010s, hackathons, there was one every weekend. Oh, yeah. And then they seemed to die off because I think a lot of people were sort of like, first of all, I'm, I don't want to give any more of my free labor or I spend a weekend working on something, a whole evening working on something, and nothing comes out of it because there's no continuity, there's no infrastructure to support the work after that night is done. But ever since COVID-19 came around, there's that influx of hackathons, not just in Canada, but it seems as though in many parts around the world. What are your thoughts on that in general? Is this a good idea? Is this just sort of using an old idea that, because we don't have any better ideas? Oh, I don't know if it's a good idea or a bad idea, or an old idea and a renewed, rejuvenated idea, but I do know that there's a group of people who have skills communication skills, data skills, modeling skills, scientific skills, coding skills, uh, user experience skills, uh, communication skills to kind of augment conversations. And that group of people are all at home right now twiddling their thumbs. And so that group of people with those skills and their own networks are able to get together within the context of a hackathon and maybe try to resolve some specific problems. And there's no two places and no two hackathons that are alike. And there's no way to be able to, at this point, later on we'll be able to, but right now we can't objectively assess the kinds of efforts that are happening. But certainly there is room for people to try and act with the capacity and the skills and the knowledge they have. And when I say those three things, I think of a really important philosopher that we have here in Canada named Andrew Feinberg, and he would talk about technological citizenship and data citizenship, and you may have heard me talk about that before. And it's this idea that if you have the ability, and you have the agency, and you have the knowledge, and you have the capacity, you ought to act in data, and he would say technological space. I always add data because that's my thing, right? So you ought to act in the data and the technological space to ensure that the technocrats don't take over, but also you ought to contribute the skills that you have in the way that you have those skills to be able to help others. 
right? I mean, yes, I can make I can make a great bowl of soup for 500 people. I'm really good at that. I've had to do that kind of thing before in different places. But is that the best place for me to put the skills that I have if I'm able to code or if I'm able to build data models or if I'm able to put up a data portal or if I'm able to organize a hackathon to try and get people thinking about things? My one concern always, uh, and I will always, always bring this up because in the era of misinformation and disinformation, in an era where it's very difficult for people to critically think about what is accurate, what is reliable, what is a fact-based news source, and whom do I trust in this particular context, I think it's very, very important that we self-disclose anything that gets produced resulting from any of these spaces if we are not part of population health and we are not epidemiologists and we are not chief medical officers of health or health practitioners on the front lines that we should make sure that people know that front and center on any of the apps and devices and or data sets that we may share to ensure that people, and that we point back always to the reliable sources at this time, which are our population health government websites. I think that's really, really critically important so that we don't turn people away from official sources of knowledge and that they recognize what those official sources are. At the same time, uh, when we do any of this work anywhere in the world, if we're dealing with data and so on, then we need to go back to good what I would call citizen science or open science practices. And that would be, where did I get these data? How did I get these data? When did I get these data? At what scale are these data rendered at? Um, what are the definitions of all of the titles that are appearing in my data set? So what's in the headings? What's the data dictionary? Uh, what is the methods by which these data are collected in these different infrastructures, so methodological information? And if I do any modeling or if anybody does any modeling or puts out any graphs or makes any maps, that there be really good methodological documentation that explains what it is that they're doing. Otherwise, we're going to be reading a lot of information and we are not going to know what to trust and what we should not trust. And we also need to practice, if we're going to proselytize open data, open government, open science, open source types of practices, we ought to, as people in the community, also practice those, practice what it is that we preach. And I think that for me right now is a very significant concern. And then the other thing is, is we should never divert attentions away from any of the authorities that are working on the front lines of this issue, but we should be helping them in any which way they can, that they can be helped or that they require help, or we can do things on the side that does not interfere with their work and maybe provides knowledge about things that they are not able to do at this particular time. Your, your thoughts, your statements, your insights made me remember of an article that I read years ago when I first got into the space that in this new era of open data and big data and, and technology that the new lobbyists who for centuries were whispering in the emperor's ear and and directing a lot of the policies perhaps in this new era is going to become the data scientists and the people that pose the questions and collect the data and we should be just as critical 
of how that data is collected, like you've identified, as we are, say, lobbyists, because they will drive a lot of the policy just by how data is even published. That's right. And now you bring up data scientists, and that's interesting, because data scientists in real terms are not great at what we just talked about. Data scientists are really good modelers. Data scientists love algorithms and machine learning and automation and artificial intelligence. They love working with big, complicated data sets and doing interesting work, and they love getting answers to things. But what we also see, one of the failings of a lot of data scientists, and it's not because they're bad people, not in any which way or form am I suggesting that, but by virtue of their, the kind of education that often they receive. They are often software engineers, computer scientists, um, generally not statisticians, interestingly, because data science and statisticians usually are at, at odds with each other. Mm. Uh, they are people, they're economists and so on. And none of them come from, you know, a critical data studies perspective where they ask themselves those questions. What are my data sources? Are these good data sources? Are they reliable data sources? Are they uh, authoritative data sources? Is the method I'm applying something that I just put together myself because I happen to know how to do this? Or have I gone to take a look at what epidemiologists are doing and social scientists are doing and population health people are doing and health practitioners are doing and understanding their science and their methodologies and then hopefully emulating or replicating or augmenting or improving that? Or are they just inventing stuff and then self-aggrandizing as a result of it? And I'm really, you know, data scientists get really grumpy at me when I say stuff like this, but this is a common problem with data science, that there is this lack of, I won't say integrity, but there is this lack of looking to other communities beyond themselves when they're doing their work. And sometimes we see this in open data as well. We invent things thinking that they've never been invented before, and then we go, oops, you mean that's been around for 200 years, right? <laughs> And, and that's kind of what's happened a lot with, with open data as well. We've seen it. And that's always been my trepidation with hackathons and so on, that we do things in the moment, but we don't go back in time and look at things historically and or look at the specialist communities to see what they do and how they understand things. And this is a lecture. I'm invited every year to the uh, Data 5000 class at Carleton University in data science to actually give that lecture. Right, to give the lecture as no, you cannot recognize people who are so homosexual by their faces, right? And that, that's ridiculous, that's just junk science. Yeah. No, you can't find criminals by simply comparing LinkedIn profile pictures and Instagram pictures and mugshots, right? You might be able to with that data set, but it's already faulty in its premise. So, you know, and also that we're starting to see, you know, as uh, junk science and junk old old school eugenics appearing in the guise of data science because people just want to experiment and they haven't gone to look at the issues that have happened as a result of this bad social science uh, and how we've pushed back on that bad social science and they're almost reinventing it. So with, with data science, we need to be very particular and we ought to ensure that our data scientists are aware of where they're blindsided. Just like I'm not gonna go and pretend that I can answer questions about epidemiology. I don't know epidemiology. I am going to defer to them because really right now, 
they are the experts in this field and then i need to defer to what they understand who is an authority and who is not and it's not up to me to be doing data modeling uh, based on those issues if I'm going to be adding more noise to it and that's what we're going to see with data scientists if we don't hold them to account. So in a way our job, you know yours and mine's Richard, is when we see things is to ask those questions. Where did you get those data? How did you put those data together? What is your algorithm? What is your model? And who did you refer to in terms of scholarship uh, and expertise to come up with that model and what are the strengths and the limitations of the models that you've just put up with. And if people can't answer those questions, they should take their models down and or they should at least put the caveats at the very, very top of whatever it is that they're working on to let us know that this is an experiment. Mm -hmm. All right, or there are limitations to this thing and don't use this as an official source. Yeah, a bit of a throwing a bit of responsibility into the mix and accountability. To Absolutely. Um, we have to start uh, thinking about wrapping up the episode okay. before we do. Is there anything that like this conversation has gone the gamut? We've gone across the spectrum on a lot of things, but is there anything that we haven't talked about that you feel should be mentioned at this point? Yeah. When we were talking a little bit about it earlier this morning, um, people like Patrick Meyer, who did, uh, who developed a book, who wrote a book called digital humanitarianism and it continues to do, digital humanitarianism work, right? So he started getting involved. That was it. That was, that's what I brought up. Oh, that right. one. That okay. was the one, yeah. Digital, yeah. <laughs> there we go. We're back to, see, we're, eventually it comes back. Yes, um, please, continue. So, please continue. Yes, Patrick Meyer's work is really, really important because they started doing uh, open source and open street mapping work uh, during the era of the crisis in Haiti uh, after the earthquake and producing all and doing all kinds of you know interesting you know connecting people getting information on twitter and so on during that that period of time but they also realized that while they were doing that they were uh undermining frontline humanitarian work mm. and bypassing some of those channels so for example uh if somebody was experiencing you know they're they're under some rubble in haiti they would put it out on Twitter, the digital humanitarians would put that data on their website, but that didn't necessarily feed back to Haiti, to the military to go and save that person mm. because those channels weren't there, right? They were publishing the data and putting the, the data on a map, but they weren't connected and plugged into that humanitarianism work. And so he's come up with some really interesting principles on how to do digital humanitarian work and how to ensure that you don't undermine existing channels. So what are my job in the next day or two is to go dig up some of the things that Patrick Meyer has talked about in digital humanitarianism and other scholars have talked about and see if we can put, not put together some, some kind, they, they, they have it as a, a kind of manifesto, but at least some principles by which we should think about when we are doing hackathons, when we are developing apps and doing modeling, and when we are doing our open data work, that we should make sure that we always consider that right now we are doing, you know, pandemic humanitarian work, if you will. Perhaps that's a bit too grand a title. I think for some of us that is, certainly for myself, it's too grand, <laughs> too grand a title. But so that we are at least cognizant to ensure that we don't create any more noise. And yeah. that whatever we do, we support others and we don't undermine what, what the real experts on the front lines are in doing this work. 
This is great stuff. And um, is there anything, because you're very involved in many, you, you have your, your, your beak in a lot of different pies. Is there anything right now, any projects that you're working on that you'd like to tell us a little bit before we close the episode? Um, a couple of things. One is, uh, you, you will remember that I had that blog, datalibre.ca. It's been dormant since I got this new job because I got jammed with an 80-hour work week and didn't really have time to go back to it. I'm going to start that one up again to start sharing information or reporting information that I come across that I think is reliable and things like the, you know, things to think about with digital humanitarianism. But one project that I'm really interested in right now, uh, and I'm going to fire it up in the next couple of days, and that is trying, and you, you inspired me again, because you, you often do that, Richard, on asking for the postal code data. Yes. And it's this issue of what are the framework data sets that we need? So what are, what are the health catchment areas in the country? Uh, Alessandro over at StatsCan is looking at uh, putting together where all the hospitals are and healthcare centers are, and clinics and so on. Um, where are the other socioeconomic data framework data sets uh, from electoral boundaries to health catchment areas to school board areas to uh, issues, postal code data, and so on that should be made public so that all of us can use those to generate new data sets and to do national comparative analytical work. Because right now, just because of how our federation is set up, it's nearly impossible to put these things together because a lot of those data sets are at the provincial level or the territorial level. And so I'm hoping to be able to talk to some actors to try and get those data produced uh, so that we can start using them. And I definitely want to be involved in, in that work as well with you, Tracy, because I feel strongly about it to the point where in a future episode, in a couple of weeks, I'll be releasing a conversation I had with Tony Clement, who brought Canada into the fold of the open government, open government partnership. And I flat out asked him, like, why, like, tell us why we don't have postal code data yet in Canada as open data. And he flat out said, it's Canada Post. They don't want to release it. It's a revenue stream, all that kind of jazz. And I asked him, like, what is it that it's going to take? And he said, it's probably going to take legislation. They're not going to do it willingly. Like the, the parliament will have to come together and put a bill forth to force Canada Post and release that data. So um, I think those, I want to be part of that, that initiative. So let's talk further after the, uh, this recording is done, because I feel very strongly as you do. Hashtag Canada Post release hashtag postal code data. We might have to come up with a slightly shorter <laughs> hashtag, but well, well, it's probably a good idea. <laughs> maybe, maybe even a bilingual one, perhaps. But we'll put some, we'll put our clever mind around it. But yeah, I think um, I think he, Mr. Clement might be right. We'll have to to get the MPs involved into this. Well, we'll see how we do. Yeah. So thank you so much for for joining us today, Tracy, and being so insightful and passionate about uh, what's going on right now in the open data world. And I want to thank again our viewers for listening. And as usual, please leave a rating or a comment on how to make the podcast better or if there's any guests or any stories that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it open. <laughs>